Welcome to Grace Community Church On Demand, the weekly podcast from the Sunday services at Grace Community Church in Rupert, Idaho. Here at Grace, we believe in building the kingdom of God one person at a time. We're passionate about loving God, loving people, and following Jesus. Let's get into this week's message with Pastor Travis Turner. Amen. How many of you are ready for the word of the Lord today? Now listen. I want you to know that you are going to be, you're going to be blessed today with a double portion. And, and, and I shared this in first service and I shared it, you know, pre-service that literally our guest speaker today is one of my favorite teachers to listen to. And he is a part of this house. This is where his roots are is in this house. And so... I can promise you this, you're going to be wanting to pay attention right out of the gate. So don't, don't think that you're going to have time to warm up this morning. So go ahead and get your notepads out because today would be a great opportunity for you to take notes and get your Bibles ready. And uh, let's just get warmed up and prepare our hearts right now to be ready to hear the word of the Lord because this word has the ability to change and to transform your life going forward. I would love for you to please stand to your feet as you welcome uh, our very own Dr. Paul Deering, a friend of mine and a friend of this house, as he breaks bread for us today. Thank you, Pastor. Love you. You all are too kind. I have a lot of notes. Long message. Don't worry. In Texas, uh, where I grew up, you know, it was the 1970s and the Dallas Cowboys were God's team. And uh, my dad was a minister and uh, the deacons especially would get a little antsy, you know, as the service kind of drug on. And Dad would say, uh, listen, fellas, just relax. I'm going to have you home in time for kickoff in the second half. <laughs> that was back in the days of Tom Landry and Roger Stahlbach and Ed Tall jones and the doomsday defense and... You know, Tom Landry, such a magnificent man of God, he cared more about what a player was off the field than what he was on the field. And we need more like him in our day. At any rate, you know the drill, so take your Bibles and open them. Open them anywhere, it's all good. But if you want to hang out with us, we're going to start at the beginning. And I guess if there needed to be a title for this message today, I'd call it Beginnings. And kind of a central component to it is the matter of faith. Let me organize myself a little better here and we'll get started. You know, that first service, uh, they were a little intimidating. I've always kind of considered them to be a bit more saved than second service. 
You know, because they get up early, they kind of get up with God, and their passion must be higher. They get in here, and you know. But uh, I got past my intimidation. They turns out they're no more saved than we are. Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, okay. Oh wow, we have it on three screens. IT, thank you all. My goodness, they're incredible. You know, <clears throat> as a bit of an aside that is long overdue, I want to thank Pastor Matt and the entire praise team and our unsung heroes in the back, our IT people, who, you know, all of them go above and beyond. You know, um, one could argue that the most important part of our service um, I'm almost hesitant to say that, but perhaps the most important part of our service is our ministering to the Lord. You know, that's our worship time. He largely ministers to us during the preaching through His Word. Bless Him for that. We so desperately need that. We need it all, don't we? Okay, um, <clears throat> what you're seeing on the screen is uh, the deep space field image uh, taken by the James Webb Space Telescope. And I want to give credit to NASA and the Space Telescope Science Institute who only ask that we acknowledge that if we're going to show these publicly. Um, uh, just a few years ago, they launched the rocket carrying this new space telescope, which far outstrips the abilities of the Hubble Space Telescope. And they set it at the Lang Langton Point named for the fellow who developed the mathematics that established this point. So if you take the Earth, a very small planet, and the Sun, a very large star, at least relative to the Earth, but small among stars, they, they're separated by 93 million miles. That's eight light minutes of distance. Somewhere on the line connecting the two is a point where the gravitational force it, uh, exerted by each on a body placed at that point is equivalent. So if you place an object there, it stays right there. Doesn't move, ever. So they launched the satellite, the rocket, and sent the uh, James Webb Space Telescope to the Langton Point and parked it there. And it's got a 21-foot diameter mirror, and that point is 900,000 miles from Earth, about three plus times the distance of our moon from our planet. And they started imaging deep space with it. <clears throat> and this field is taken by shooting along an azimuth that is uh, uh, close to the handle of the Big Dipper in the constellation Ursa Major. But they're looking way past that constellation because they're wanting to look back to the beginning of time for the universe. And we estimate by Big Bang Theory, which it turns out thus far is really <clears throat> quite good theory, and actually in terms of our science, and you know, again, the Lord didn't make us idiots. We are created in the image of God. There are some very bright minds out there working some unbelievable mathematics to derive these physics equations and theories. But anyway, if you <clears throat> believe that Big Bang is very likely close to the way that God did things, then the universe is about 
billion years old. And with the James Webb Space Telescope, they're looking back toward the earliest times of the formation of the universe. And they have uh, found a galaxy. They're looking for a redshift of, of Z about 14. And they're finding them that 11 uh, plus Z red point shift. And you know, the, at Big Bang, if you uh, buy into that theory and so much science supports it, the universe began at a, a singularity. Now, a singularity is, one way you get a singularity is a star collapsing on itself. And you can appreciate a star. Now, our sun is a small one, but it's a massive mass. And in a singularity, a star collapses on itself by the force of its own gravity, and it goes to a volume of zero which is less than the size of your thumb. And uh, coupled with that collapse, all of the mass is still there, so it reaches infinite density, infinite temperature, and because of the infinity of the gravitational field now associated with it, it has infinite curvature of space-time. Now, they believe that Big Bang started from the triggering of a singularity. What they can't figure out to this point is where did the singularity come from? Where did the singularity come from? And so we live in this expanding universe that started out at trillions of degrees Celsius temperature. Unbelievable density, unbelievable mass, and everything is spreading out like from that point explosion, and the universe is expanding and cooling. As it expands, the distances between all the objects increase, and the light spectra from any given object shifts more toward the longer wavelengths of the spectrum, the red shift. There are degrees of red shift which indicate to us how far away an object is. So they're looking for Z14 red shift in objects they're imaging in this sky. And that will mean that those objects are very early formed after Big Bang, about 250 to 300 million years after Big Bang. And we're 13.8 billion years now post Big Bang. Now, the principal researcher at the UT Austin, uh, his first name is Steve. His last name is clearly a Jewish name. I found it interesting that the head researcher is a Jewish man. And in astronomy, when you uh, discover an object in space, you get the privilege of naming it. Now, they had this long technical name for the galaxy they found, but he said, you know, that's not going to do. We need something to humanize this. So he thought, and he didn't have to think long because he thought about one of the most precious things in his life, which was his little nine-year-old girl, Macy. So he named the galaxy Macy's Galaxy. Isn't that just like God? This is a slice of sky that is equivalent to you putting a grain of sand on your thumb and holding it at arm's length. And then from your visual axis, 
if you look down the left side of the grain of sand and down the right side of the grain of sand and go out on those diverging rays for 13 billion light years, you have that view. That large center white spot, that's a galaxy cluster. And that's probably somewhere between 10 and 100 light years across. The distance light travels in a year. And one light year is 5 trillion 865 billion, 696 million miles. If you do the math, you realize that if one of you will walk simply 5.45 light years and get someone to sponsor you at a dollar a mile, you can pay off our federal debt. Just 5.45 light years, dollar a mile. Anyway, so in the field you're viewing, there are 50,000 plus galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars, and trillions of planets. And remember, our universe is expanding in all directions, and that's just one slice, that's at one point. There are infinite points around that sphere of expansion. I want to suggest to you that we have no idea who it is that we're dealing with. No idea. Now, you would think that this would really impress God who created it. And while we're at it, you all are thinking, come on, man, you haven't bought into that 13.8 billion years age of the universe stuff, have you? We know he did it in six days. You're right to ask that question. And here's what I believe the answer is. We're going to go over to the New Testament. And we're going to start in the second beginning before we go back to the first beginning. And the second beginning, of course, has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel Gabriel. We're in Luke, first chapter. The angel Gabriel comes to a little town in Galilee to a little couple of families. One is Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. He's a priest. He's doing his priestly duties at the altar of incense. And Gabriel shows up beside the altar. And he has a number of things to say to um, Zechariah. And Zechariah is finding it a little hard to believe him. And... Let me find it here. I switched Bibles. 12 of... Uh... Thank you, Pastor. Angel appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zacharias saw him and he was troubled and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And uh, he goes on, and Zechariah starts kind of discussing with uh, the angel why that can't be. (laughs) 
because he's an old man and his wife is old. They're well past the childbearing years. And the, the angel brings him back to um, reality by saying these words, I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of God. See, a nanosecond before Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, he was in the throne room with God. A nanosecond. It's 10 to the minus 12 seconds. Something like that. And then he's standing, talking with Zacharias. And then going on, a few verses later, Gabriel is sent in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now Mary was perhaps 13 to 15 years of age, somewhere in that range, a chaste virgin of Israel. And Gabriel shows up, and these are his words. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And he said, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You are going to conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. And she goes on and says, well, how can this be? I've not known a man. I am a virgin of Israel. And I'm going to stay that way until I'm married. And the angel says, well, listen, here's the deal. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and overshadow you, and you are going to conceive, and that child will be the Son of God and will save his people from their sins. And Mary, she didn't have a great deal of trouble with that. Let's see, she goes on and says... Uh, Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Wow, Mary was on board from the outset. She didn't have the unbelief that Zacharias did. And the angel then goes on to say that nothing is impossible with God. That's why this is going to happen. Nothing will be impossible with God. So I introduced that to come back to where we were. We know by the biblical account that creation was six days and on the seventh day God rested. But all of our science says about 13.8 billion years. How do you reconcile the two? Very easily. If we in fact believe that Gabriel knows what he's talking about, and I strongly suspect that he does, then the two are not at all irreconcilable because you have to remember, God exists outside of time. Time is a created dimension by God. He is in no way captive to it. He can do anything he wants to with time. And so he can do it in six literal 24-hour periods. And the biblical account suggests strongly that it is six 24-hour periods because it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And so forth and so on. But I would suggest to you that God is able to take 13.8 billion years and compress it into six 24-hour periods. Whoa. Blow me down. Beloved of God, we have no idea who it is that we're dealing with. No idea. Anyway, moving forward. 
So, Macy's Galaxy. We'll come back to Macy a little later, if I have time, whatever time is. So, the first beginning in the Bible is God impressed by all of this that we have up on the screen and all that we talked about? Apparently not. Because on the fourth day of creation, let me go back to the Bible I know. How many of you understand that you got to have your Bible to find your way around the Bible? I don't use this one as much. This is... I've had this since 1979. My parents gave it to me. I, I love it. Of course, it's a little challenged uh, with regards to our present language because it's King James. Okay. So, moving forward to day six of creation. This is where God has his passion. And going back to day four, he dispenses with all of this. Everything we've talked about, he dispenses with it in five words. He made the stars also. That's what he says. <laughs> this is a book of such massive understatement. He made the stars also. But then in six... This has his passion and his full focus. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. The first evidence of the Trinity. Trinitarian theology is integral to the Christian faith. God exists in three separate persons, but one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They've always been eternally present. Three in one, three separate persons. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now man here is the word Adam, A-A-D-A-H-M, Adam, the Hebrew. It means mankind, not proper name man. So Adam also, though it's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, the other proper name Adam, the first man that we know, that's only used about 25 times or so in the Old Testament. So Adam refers to the first man, Adam, the Hebrew, which we translate as Adam. It nonetheless means mankind, two genders, male and female. Okay? Now God goes on from there and he establishes the Garden of Eden in chapter 2. And uh, he builds Eve. He builds Eve. Isn't that interesting wordage? He builds Eve. He caused a sleep to fall over Adam, and he took something out of his body. It's termed a rib, and he fashioned Eve. He built Eve out of that. Some have argued that God said after he made man that he looked and said, you know, I can do better than that, so he built Eve. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's an old one. He built Eve and he presented her to the man. And he established at that time at the creation his earthly sacred covenant, which is the nearest example of the Godhead on earth. One man, one woman in the sacred bond of marriage with God over the two of them. 
Trinitarian still, isn't it? But the closest analogy we have on earth to what's happening in the Godhead, marriage. Okay, and it goes on, and, and uh, then we hit chapter 3, and chapter 3 starts with, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the wheels fall off. And then we go through the rest of the Old Testament, and we see, uh, um, well, first of all, before I go to that, let me say this. In 315, 15th verse of the third chapter, we have what is termed the Proto-Evangelium. And this is the first messianic prophecy concerning what's coming. The first, the Proto-Evangelium. And this is what God said. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your seed and her seed. Your seed, or her seed rather, the Savior will bruise your head and you'll only bruise his heel. So the seed of the woman will bruise his head indicating a fatal wound. He will be defeated when he encounters the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman being Jesus going forward. And then going on from there, hundreds of years, we have Noah, the patriarch, slavery, Moses and the law, the exodus, wilderness journeying, uh, arriving at the promised land, refusing to go in because of fear and unbelief on the part of 10 of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb being the only ones who say, hey, we can do this, come on, let's go. They don't give in to fear. Everyone else does. God keeps them out of the promised land. They turn a multi-day journey into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and everyone dies off except Joshua and Caleb. And they finally go into the promised land. The kingdom is established. We go through kings, judges, prophets, all of that, and then everything falls silent from heaven for 400 years. At the conclusion of all that, no new canonized uh, voice. Uh, however, they still had all the prophetic writings. They had the uh, Old Testament law and prophets. And then we come to the second beginning. The second beginning. And I'm going to read for you the second beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on him. His name. 
which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I told you we would come back to Macy's galaxy. If you go on down in the first chapter of John to verse 35, this is one of my favorite parts. John the baptizer stood with two of his disciples, which it appears were John the apostle and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And uh, looking at Jesus, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the two disciples heard him, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned them and saw them following and said to them, What seek ye? What do you want? What are you after? What are you searching for? What's going to do it for you in this life? This is infinity locked in gaze with these two disciples. And I can imagine they staggered under the weight of his question. And all they could bring themselves to say, uh, uh, Jesus, where do you hang? Where dwellest thou? In the King James. And Jesus, when he hears that question, this is what I like to think. Now, this is, this is opinion, okay? This isn't Bible. But it's not at all unlike God to do this. So Jesus, having been asked that question, he goes through about 5.2 trillion lines of thinking in less than a second. And one of those lines of thought he goes through is, where dwellest, where do I dwell? Well, and he, he's, he's thinking of a number of things, you know, but all in a, a nanosecond, five trillion options. One of which would be, well, I dwell between the cherubim above the mercy seat on the ark. That's where I dwell. I dwell in the throne room of, of Father God. That's where I dwell. Oh, and in 2022, they're going to have launched a rocket and placed an uh, imaging telescope in orbit, and they're going to go to the farthest reaches of my creation, searching for old galaxies. And the researcher, who, by the way, is a Jewish person, and, and the Jews are my chosen people, and he's going to find a galaxy that was uh, very young from the time I said, let there be light. <laughs> and uh, he's going to name that for his little daughter, Macy. And I know that little girl. I know her everything about her, and I love that little girl. I think it's so wonderful that her father named that galaxy for her. So, yeah, I dwell in Macy's galaxy too. And he had trillions of other similar thoughts. In fact, you all might try asking God if he'll name something for you in the heavens. I bet he will. He is your loving father. He loves to hear from his children and make good on their requests. So that's full cycle on Macy's galaxy. So, Jesus then, the second beginning of Scripture, starts his earthly ministry. He ultimately, he does uh, perform signs and miracles. He suffers under Pontius Pilate. He's He's uh, falsely tried, falsely convicted, and uh, falsely crucified. 
But it had to be performed because that was his reason for coming. And then he rose from the dead on the third day, and then he ascended to the heavens where he exists to this day. Before he left, he said, listen, fellas, I've, I've got to go, because if I don't go, the comforter, the paraclete, can't come. So, you know, I, I am Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm in this flesh of a man, and I'm going to be this way for all of eternity. I'm going to have a glorified body, which he had after, at the resurrection, but if I stay here, it's not going to be really good for you because I can only be in one place at one time. You need somebody which is going to teach you everything about me. He loves me as much as the Father loves me because he and the Father and I are one, and he's going to minister to your hearts where he's going to live everything that is true, noble, exciting, wonderful, uh, helpful about me. He's going to live with you all the time. So I'm leaving, guys, and he is coming. And he told them to wait for the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit would come, and they would be imbued from power on high, and then the church age starts, and we are in the church age. Now, Peter, in his epistle, said, in these last days, we take that to mean the church age. Now, if he said that almost two millennia ago, I would suggest that we are two millennia further along into these last days than when Peter said that. So the last days are getting shorter by two millennia anyway. Only the Father knows how long this is going on before the Lord splits the heavens wide and makes his triumphal return to earth. So everyone, we all in Christ get excited about the second coming. But let me suggest to you another second coming of Jesus. I'm being a little loose with my words here in order to stress a point to you. We are all so hopeful that the Lord will come before we taste death. So far that hasn't happened. We to this point have all tasted death except for two individuals, Enoch and Elijah. Jesus died. He raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus went on to die again. So, most likely, we will pass through the veil of death, but Jesus will be with you. And so, his second coming for anyone in this room can reasonably be predicted within a fairly short number of years, like... I know for Paul Deering, my dad lived to, lived to almost 98. That means most likely the second coming of Christ for me is going to be within the next 30 years. Because to be absent with this body is to be present with the Lord. If that's not a second coming, I don't know what is. So, you know, let's expand our thinking a bit around these beautiful truths of Scripture. Um, okay, moving on. What's the key to all of this? Well, I think the key to it all is faith. Key is faith. That's what's gifted to, it is, to us, stewarded by us, and required of us. Faith. Faith is the persisting, 
unremitting, submitted belief in God and every word that he speaks. We never waver from genuine faith. We receive it. It is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that. We can't come to God unless he calls us. And we also know that it's not his will that any should perish. So every person ever born has a saving measure of faith in them that will ignite at a time and they will have a choice to make. Choose well. So when we enter through faith, that's not what saves us, that brings us to the position of then the grace of God which is his force and favor. So it's both power and it's his undeserved favor in combination, acting with our faith, through our faith, if you will, the result being our salvation. And that is forever. He will never release you. Never will he release you. It is possible, we know from Hebrews, that you can pull yourself out from under that. I can't imagine anyone wanting to do that. We talked about this some time ago, almost a year ago. I call it the apostasy pipeline. If we give ourselves to the deceitfulness of sin... That leads to hardness of heart, that leads to unbelief, and that's the gateway to apostasy itself. Hebrews is rich in the discussion of that. But I can't imagine anyone doing that. When we have tasted the blessing for us of God through the death of his son on the cross, the second Adam, the perfect Adam, regaining what the first Adam at the first beginning lost for us. The first Adam in choosing sin gave the keys of death and hell to Satan. Jesus, the perfect second Adam, in laying aside his godly attributes for a period of time, he was still God, but he lay aside his godly prerogatives and fused himself in the flesh of a man. He was this unbelievable product, this fusion of God and man. Fully man, fully God, all the time. But he chose, like God chooses to forget your sins, never to remember them again when they've been brought under the authority of the blood of Jesus. He chose to set aside his godly prerogatives for that period of time. Why else would he tell us, listen, I I go to the Father and, hey, guys, you're going to do greater things than I've done because I go to the Father. Greater things than Jesus did? That's his promise. How can that be if he was here as God? It's because he lay all of that aside and everything he did was out of his obedience to the Father, his relationship to the Father. That's what he calls us to. 
is that same degree of intimacy with Father God through His blood. So if we are powerless in our lives, that issue's on our side of the ledger. It's not on God's side. He said, you'll do greater things than I've done. But the key is absolute, total submission and obedience to the Father. A close relationship, the likes of which I don't yet know. We're all in process. But that's His calling to us. So in your faith, look, we're over time. Whatever time is. We better bring this in for a landing. Let's look at um, one other thing concerning your faith that precious gift of God by which we come into salvation through Christ. One thing about faith is we should be dogged in it, determined, aggressive. We should never stop fighting for those things that are holy and precious in God's eyes, whether it's a marriage, the life of a loved one, um, some broken relationship. Um, We should never stop contending. It isn't over until God says it's over. 2 Kings 13, 14. This is about Elisha. Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And I I won't read it word for word. I'll I'll just paraphrase it for you. So Joash, king of Israel, comes to him and and, uh, Elisha says, hey, take a bow and some arrows. So the king does. And Elisha puts his hand on the king's hands as he's holding the bow. He says, open the east window. King does. Says, shoot an arrow. He does. Out the window. And Elisha says, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians and Aphek till they have cons- until thou have consumed them. And then he says, take the arrows. And Elisha and the king takes the arrows. And Elisha says, strike the ground with them. And the king strikes the ground three times and he stops. And Elisha says, why did you stop? Don't stop striking the ground. That was a continuing command. Now, if you had struck six or seven times, you would have totally wiped out the Syrians forever. But now, since you stopped it three times, you're only going to have three victories over them. They're going to be a pain in your side after that going forward. So in your faith, the Lord is looking for us to, of ourselves, exercise doggedness, determination, and aggressiveness in our pursuit of His perfect plan for us. So as we close this today, I want you all to think in terms of when you're striking the ground in faith, don't stop. 
don't stop. I think often in life we give up when we're at the half yard line. When on the next play, we can take it all the way in. Now, I would be remiss um, if I didn't do this today. If there's anyone here who has never said yes to the desire of Jesus to cover you in his blood and eliminate your sins for now and forevermore, never to remember them against you again, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you, dear lady. Is there anyone else? Anyone up top? Thank you. Welcome to the family of God. Now, we would love for you to meet with pastors here I'd be happy to pray with you at the end of the service you've said yes to um, most exciting thing you'll ever enjoin I would tell you up front it, it won't be an easy road but Jesus will do it with you he will never leave you nor forsake you you all understand the difference leaving means you physically Separate. Forsaking means you're still physically present, but you're not there. <laughs> He'll never do either of those. We tend to do those with each other. We leave or we forsake or we do both, but Jesus never will. That's it for today's teaching. Hey, here's an idea. Share today's message with a friend or family member. If you're listening from outside our fellowship, we'd love to meet you. Visit graceid.org and hit the contact form to get in touch. We'd also love for you to join us. You can even check us out on Facebook Live by searching Facebook for Grace Church Rupert ID. Learn more and plug in at graceid.org. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Grace Community Church.